gift stuff, you know, uh, things from, from Africa uh, to distribute with a uh, raffle, a free raffle at the picnic. And uh, I, I don't know if I can say every single person that comes will get something, but um, we probably can make that happen, and every single kid that comes will get something. How about that? And some of the parents can pout, uh, and non-parents. No, but we'll raffle, and it's a free raffle. We're not asking you to give. You have given and, and are sending us, and, and please continue to pray. Scott Lumley last year did this really great three-week study, and so we're taking a break from... Uh, um, Joshua, not this week. We'll have Joshua this week, chapter 11 through 14. There's um, papers over in the corner that you can get to help you for study. Uh, but he'll, then he'll do a three-week study with us on Wednesday nights, just a regular Bible study for a few weeks. Is there other announcements that I didn't make? All right, we're in John 13. Our sister Jordan is uh, recovering from surgery. We have other things to pray for, but we'll do that a little bit later. So we are going to finish John chapter 13, the second part, and I'll pray. Father, we thank you again for this day. Thank you that we can worship the Lord of glory and that though flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, we all must be changed. And uh, we thank you that there's a hope of change, not just that I'm going to change in my personality here or my uh, uh, capacities here on earth, though that can happen, Mostly, we're going to change by yielding to your spirit and letting you live in us. And we're going to be changed forever to be like you in a glorified body with you and each other. If we had to live in this body with the challenges of these days and constantly be putting to death the flesh, as we say in biblical terms, uh, heaven would be a tough place. We thank you, Lord, that there is a victory that has been won, a victory to walk in here but also a hope of complete and total victory as none of us have ever known. May we have that hope set before us today. May we follow you in that hope. You are our leader. You are our savior. You are our best friend and our comforter. And we pray you that you would be our teacher as well as you are today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Jesus had said, now you're clean through the word I've spoken to you as he washed the disciples' feet. And he also said, if you, you, know, you're, you see what I've done for you, I've come as a servant. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many, Jesus said in, in the Gospel of Mark were his words. And he has washed his disciples' feet. And he says, if you know these things, in verse 17, blessed are you if you do them. To know something and not do it is just a burden something that is for you. But to know something and do it is freedom. And uh, Jesus knew. Jesus knew. He, he knew everything that was going to happen. He, we're going to see that here again today. But he's, one thing he didn't know, he knew no sin by experience. He had never experienced the weight of his own sin because he didn't have any. And he had never experienced the weight of your sin in the way that he was going to when he goes to that cross. Your sin and my sin and his sin, and her sin, and, you know, I'm a pepper, she's a pepper, he's a pepper. All over the world, through all history, every single person's sin, the very nature of sin he took upon himself on that cross. So this was a prelude, uh, a lesson, and a preview of the cross. He'll soon feel the weight of every sin of every person. And what an amazing thing our Lord has done for us. What, what dignitary comes from another country, and they go to stay at the White House or somewhere that they set them up 
and they, the, and to, to hand a dignitary from another country, or even a governor or some dignitary coming into a, a state. Uh, you, you hand them a pile of sheets and, and, and a washcloth and a towel and say, here, your bed's in that room. Does that ever happen? No, no. People, when they come as dignitaries, they come to be served, don't they? They may serve in their, they may have, you know, summit talks, but none of them say, okay, um, I got my apron. Where's the carrots that need to be peeled for dinner, right? It would be ridiculous, right? But our Savior, our Savior, the King of glory of eternity, came to earth as a servant. Nobody handed him his clean-pressed sheets. No, he got on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. There, is, there are people who have acted in humility, to be sure. There are other humans who have done great, kind works. We give that. But nobody came from where Jesus came from, who he is, to do what he did. There's a huge, huge, huge difference, isn't there? So he goes on. I do not speak, in verse 18, concerning all of you, for I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes to pass that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. The scripture must be fulfilled. Psalm 41.9, among hundreds of others in the Old Testament that point to Jesus Christ, this one points to his betrayal by Judas. Jesus is not venting frustration, but he, I tell you beforehand so that when, you, when it happens, you'll know. Can you imagine if Jesus is sitting at the table and no discussion like we're getting into here, Judas gets up, walks out the door, oh, life goes on. We're going to hear Jesus is going to tell Peter something too. Jesus doesn't tell Peter. What happens the next few hours when Judas comes and betrays Jesus with a kiss? What happens not only to those disciples, but what happens to the rest of human history observing and trying to learn about Jesus? It's like, so I'm going to trust this guy, this guy, he's God, he's God the Son, and he doesn't even know that he's got a, a rat in his midst. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. So that we would know. He's thinking of the Father and his relationship with him and his oneness. He's thinking of his disciples and his love for them. And he's thinking of you. And he's serving you. And he's serving me. He knew his identity and he knew his purpose. And he knew that he needed to go to the cross. And he knew that Judas would betray him. And he let his disciples know. Verse 20. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives me. Excuse me. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in the spirit and testified, saying, and said, Most assuredly, I say unto you, one of you will betray me. So this is not just an act. You know, he's not reading from a manuscript. Oh, now is my soul troubled. Oh, yes, this is going to happen. Oh, my. You know, filling out an acting some people think that. They think since he knew what was going to happen, that it's all just this act. No, Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit. There's going to be a reception of Jesus' ministry, yeah. He who receives you, 
But that's not coming yet. There's going to be ultimate joy, but that's not happening yet. He is right now facing the bitter herbs of Passover, the bitterness of the emotion and the pain and the outcome of betrayal. And if you've been betrayed, and I'm certain people in this room have, you may say, well, Jesus wouldn't know how I feel it wasn't a mate, a husband or a wife or a parent. Well, he's betrayed by mankind. He's betrayed by his close friend, and he's also somebody who did what none of us would do. He willingly walked into the betrayal, whereas we were trapped in a betrayal. We didn't know it. Because if you've been betrayed, and you had a way, and you knew it was coming, you'd have done something. Jesus knew it was coming, and he did something all right. He said, yep, this is my path for you. And I do not understand everything you've been through. Any person that tells you, just, I know exactly how you feel. Well, I guess if they've been through an exact situation with you, they might naturally say that, and that's okay. And even then, they may not know exactly how you feel because they're not you. But I can tell you this, I don't know exactly how you feel. And anybody who gets up and is teaching and says they know exactly how everybody feels is foolish. And, and that's not trustworthy. God knows exactly how you feel. I know how I feel. <laughs> and I know that I'm a lot like other people. But I don't know everything everybody's been through. I know the one who does and willingly took the burden. And I can only point people to the one who knows and can comfort them. We can spread the, I love that, we can spread the big sheet or what, what, what was it? What's it called that you had? giant bandage we can spread out that giant bandage for the kids to get underneath but but only god can touch their heart right and so um and somebody listening online is going to go say what (laughs) so he knows what you're feeling he knows what you go through and he faced it willingly as we would not 23 through 30 now there was leaning on jesus bosom one of the disciple whom jesus loved Uh, That is John's self-description always in the Gospel of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, and that's John talking about himself. And he's on one side of the table next to Jesus. Peter's around the horn on that, you know, we think it was a a U-shaped table, and Peter's at the lowest seat, and John's next to Jesus, and Judas is on the other side of Jesus. And there was a disciple leaning whom Jesus loved on his breast. And Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Who who is this that's going to betray us? Ask him, ask him. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, John, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after that piece of bread, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And that just means it's the final straw where Satan took control of him. He was already yielded to Satan, going in that direction. And, uh, but no one at the table knew for what reason he said this. For some thought, because Jesus had the, Judas had the money box, that Jesus said to him, buy those things we need at the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Now, you remember, if you've been to a Passover with us or somewhere, The only kind of thing you dip in is either salt water, where you dip your bitter parsley or some kind of bitter herb in, or the dip sauce, if you will, is bitter herbs like the horseradish, ground-up horseradish, no mayonnaise, no sugar, (laughs) pure, hot, bitter herbs. 
So whatever kind they had in the lamb there, that's what they would dip in. So when he dips his matzah, his flatbread in, and then hands it to Judas, he's sharing with him the bitterness of betrayal. And so um, in, this, in this story as we're reading this, um, Judas, we've, we've discussed it previously even just a few weeks ago. i sorry, I don't remember exactly where, so we won't go into long detail. Judas is a thief. He's called the son of perdition or of uh, destruction. Uh, Jesus mentions that this man, it would be better for him if he was never born. So Judas was not an innocent guy who just got mixed up. I don't care how many movies they make. That's made up in people's minds to make them give credit to a person that is, has truly clarified to us to be bent on evil and Satan's way and then filled with Satan, and it's a case closed. I won't get into long discussions with people about it. It's like what, if what Jesus said, it's better for that man never to have been born. He's the son of perdition. It's a done deal. And it doesn't mean he had no choice in the matter, and I'll let everybody else buzz and tilt trying to figure out choice versus God's sovereignty because nobody's going to figure that out. All right, so did I help you out there? Okay, so <laughs> you can spend hours on that, and you still go with, I don't really fully understand it, but I know God gives man choice, and I know God's sovereign. And I know God's given us choice. You're not Judas. Your buddy's not Judas. You get to choose which way you're going to go. And that's what we're responsible for, to choose which way we're going to go. And so he says, um, you know, um, he, he, he's gone, and the disciples don't know this. They don't know what's going on, and Peter really wants to know. Now, I think Peter might really want to know for a lot of reasons, but he also is going to hear something in a few minutes that he does not want to know. And that is about his own failure and betrayal, his own, excuse me, denial of Jesus and failure that's coming in his life. But before we discuss it, verse 31 through 35. Now, when he had gone out, that's Judas, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself in him and glorify him immediately. I mean, it's coming quick, guys. It's happening now. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer, and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews where I'm going, you cannot come, so I now say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. We covered this. We jumped down to these two verses last week. So if you want to hear, get online. It should be up soon again. And you can hear what we shared about that because it's so vital and important. I will mention it in a moment. But God is glorified in Jesus as Jesus lays down his life for us. Jesus is glorified also in us as we love one another. And, um, you know, love isn't this orb floating through the universe and you just kind of lasso it with your love rope. (laughs) Love. Flowers fly. I mean, listen, I, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. Okay, I didn't grow up. I lived in the 60s and the 70s, okay? And, uh, yeah, I'm not working on it at all. No, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to grow up. That sounds really boring. Um, 
And, you know, I remember being in the, the youth house in Washington, D.C., and these guys came in. The, they were Rainbow didn't mean the same thing today. It, had none, it wasn't directly related to homosexuality or lesbianism. It was the Rainbow family. And anybody could say they're part of the Rainbow family. Most of these guys were actually thieves, and they stole from us. But they came in, and they were the Rainbow family. It was like kind of a cult group, and they were very loosely connected of people that just it's all about love. And I did know it was all about love because they really loved themselves <laughs> enough to take from us and make fun of us and take anything they could get from us and not lift a finger to help. Love. And uh, I, we were intimidated by them at first because they were, they, you know, because we were struggling with our walks with God. We were struggling to provide for this house. We were struggling to go out and witness and try to share Jesus Get what I'm saying? We were struggling, you know, living the Christian life in a very tough environment, but also a very blessed environment. It was really amazing. And I finally hit me as these guys are talking about love. They don't have any idea what love is. Jesus explained love. You know, it's, it's, it's you deny yourself. You give up yourself for the sake of another. And it's a choice you make. It's not a feeling you have in your heart. There should be eventually some feelings to go with it, of course. But you don't start just love doesn't start with feeling. Or if it does start with feeling, it has to go where you don't feel it and you still do it. And maybe that doesn't sound real romantic, but I'll put up the love that's been in my life through the gospel and in my family over anything anybody can uh, try to sell me from another angle. And so, you know, um, loving one another, they're going to know you're my disciples by this. You know, when the body of Christ is acting in concert with the head, Jesus, conducting, it will always display God's love. When the body of Christ is working right, God's love is being exhibited to one another. And he's saying, I'm going where you can't come right now, but the Holy Spirit's going to come. And he's got more to say to them about this. And, and you're going to be his witness on earth. Jesus isn't just demanding love. You guys better listen up. This is the new law. Love one another. On their mark, get set, go. You know, and let me see it. Let me, no. Let me see. No, no. Jesus is not only demanding love, though he is. He is demanding love. He's also giving assurance of his love through us. And this is going to be the witness to the world. Jesus would later say, greater works than I do, you will do. How is that possible? He raised the dead, and he himself took our sin, his own self on the cross, and raised from the dead into a glorified body. We haven't accomplished those things yet, have we? Greater works means the works that he did in restoration and healing people and bringing them to God can be spread out over the whole world. He was in that little place called Israel and never traveled outside of Israel. Unless you call Samaria a different place. So now the church is all over the world with the same love, the same God. That's why you can go to another country, another place, and meet a Christian. It doesn't always happen this way. Sometimes there's, we each have our bents, and you kind of might even clash a little bit. That could happen. But you also find, if you've really done any of this, if you've ever engaged people who are Christians, you find you can go all over the world with people, and you have the same Lord and the same love for the same Savior working through your lives. And it's just the, it's the, be, the great thing about traveling and doing that is learning that Jesus is Jesus everywhere. And that he is everywhere. Even with all the garbage that goes on, greater works are being done. Miracles, yes. Healings and all that, that more because you're spread out all over the world. But the most important one is this amazing love. Amazing love. How can it be? 
that you, my king, would die for me. Amazing love, I know it's true. I know it's true. It is my joy to honor you. You know, I'm not afraid. I have a good, healthy fear of God. I hope you do. But it's not that I'm afraid he's going to smash me like a bug or he's going to get mad at me. He's had lots of opportunity to do that. I'd be history if that was the case. But I fear in the healthiest reverence way that I just, when I'm in the right place, I just, his honor means a lot to me. And I know it does to you. I mean, what means a lot to you? If God's honor and his glory doesn't mean a lot to you, your life is probably going in a wrong direction. There's probably other things that are starting to unravel. And we all have problems. Don't get me wrong. But this is what keeps you on even keel. God's honor and God's glory. There's nobody else you can sing to and say, you are holy. You might have a girlfriend that she's, she's just the greatest thing since Swiss cheese. But if you kneel down in front of your girlfriend and say, you are holy, holy, you're a fool. If you go to your boyfriend or your husband or your Uncle Lou, you are holy, holy. Yes, we're called to be holy, but you understand what I'm saying. The separate purity of God in and of himself without any connection to anybody, who he is. Any holiness in my life comes directly through my connection to him. And only there. So, verse 36 through 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? He says, I'm going, you can't come. Just like I said to the Jews, Lord, where are you going? This mattered to Peter. This upset Peter. This unnerved Peter. Are you with me? This, uh, are you going? Uh, where are you going? I'm going to take a nap anyway. So, yeah. That was later. <laughs> where, what do you mean we can't go with you? This bothers Peter. Where I'm going now, you cannot follow me, but you shall follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? It wasn't in England in the 1500s. Why, thus, why can't I I not follow thee now? Why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you, for your sake. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not being overdramatic. I'm actually toning it down so I don't scare you because you're American, you know, middle class kind of touchy people, you know. It's like, <laughs> get bothered. I'm kidding. But I mean, for a Jewish guy, <laughs> take it from me, from a Jewish guy in that age, in Aramaic, what do you mean I can't follow you now? Where are you going? I'll lay down my life. Would you say, I, I'll lay down my life for you? How about Tuesday at 2 o'clock? I will lay down my life for you. And that's not all he said. Because if you go to the other Gospels, he says, though all of these, <laughs> all these guys ahead of me at the table, I don't know why I'm about here at the end of the table, but all these guys ahead of me, I don't trust them either, Jesus. I'm basically, you know, but me, I'll die for you. Though everybody else forsakes you, every single person does, I will not forsake you. That's how intense it was. In front of his close friends, he said, even if these guys bail on you, I won't. 
it mattered to Peter that he couldn't be with Jesus. I find, and I don't mean this at other people, just generically myself, you, if it fits sometimes in your life, others, that a lot of times even Christians, it just doesn't really matter that much to not be close to Jesus. Now, it matters that he answers my prayers. That matters. But, you know, the one time Jesus cried was when he was going to be separated from the Father. It wasn't the pain of the cross. Physically, it was being forsaken and separated from the Father. Sometimes we cannot notice that we're out of fellowship with God because we're just so in our group. Oh, yeah, I guess I'm not really. And I say that with, I can't know if I can say with all humility. <laughs> I can say, I say that in sincerity is that I amaze myself sometimes. And I think you amaze yourself sometimes, don't you? I mean, I hope you do, because I think it means at least you're seeing it. Like, wow, it's so easy for me to forget the Lord and leave him behind what I'm doing. You're not unique that way. You're not like, oh, that's because I'm really bad and other people are really strong. Don't buy that. You're just like the rest of us. We've, you know, it mattered to Peter. And I want to say that Peter's flaws are not necessarily more than anybody else's flaws. He's just got such a big mouth. He's just outspoken. Some of us, we're just, everything's very close to the, you know, you know, you don't see it, but it goes on inside the mind and heart. And others of us, you can't stop, you know, you want to kind of plug it, I know. But, you know, uh, some of us are more like Peter, some of us aren't, but we're all pretty much... His flaws aren't worse than everybody else's, except perhaps he had the flaw of speaking too quickly what everybody else is thinking, but afraid to say. He's not less sincere than others. He might even be more sincere. And so Peter doesn't know his own weakness yet. He doesn't know his own weakness yet. I guarantee this isn't, oh, I'm a prophet. It's simply by nature of a group of people together who knows if any of us in this room actually know our own weakness to the full degree? We don't even know that any of us do. But I'm sure there's people in this room here who have no clue of their own weakness. It's funny how when you're seven years old, I remember this, oh, you see somebody smoking a cigarette back when you could actually do it in a public place. And, <laughs> and you go, oh, yeah, oh, I would never smoke a cigarette. Anybody? Don't raise your hand. Did anybody here ever say when you were a kid, I'll never smoke a cigarette, and then what happened? You smoked cigarettes. Now, I said I'll never smoke a cigarette, and I only smoked one like once or twice. It was, uh, it was great. I couldn't stand it. But I also said I'll never do drugs. That didn't work out so well. I saw people do stuff that was stupid, and I was young, and I saw people mess up their lives and say, I would never do that. And I know I'm not alone. How about you? How many people in this room have said, I would never? Well, they were just kids. They didn't know you have to experience life and all this. It goes on all the way through life. I would never. I would, if you're a person who says, I would never do such and such, I want to caution you in the name of Jesus Christ. Pride comes before a haughty spirit and a haughty spirit before a splat, a fall. 
And when you say I would never, I, I, I contend this, there are things that are hard for me to picture me doing. There are things that I have boundaries set up for to make sure I don't, even things I'm not weak in, as well as ones I am weak in. And I don't do this perfectly, but I'm saying, yeah, because I'm aware the way I'm strong is to know where a temptation is. And that's okay. You need to be able to do that. But to say, I would never do this. To the best of my knowledge, I wouldn't do this. I would hope I would never do it. But I won't say on purpose, I would never do such a thing. Because, my friends, you don't know what you're capable of. And if you think you do, you're already down a dark road of being lied to. This is from Scripture. The heart is desperate and deceitfully wicked above all things. I alone, the Lord, search and try the reins of the heart. Jeremiah seventeen fourteen or fourteen seventeen. Don't remember. So the person who says I would never is setting themselves. It doesn't mean they're automatically going to do that thing. I'm just saying. I'm warning us to say don't don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. That's not sober minded. That's kind of like drunk with pride. I know myself. Do you really? What have you been through? You see, success in the world's eyes is based on competition with other people. How much, listen, if only one person in this room owned a car and it was a 58 Studebaker, some of you guys don't even know what a Studebaker is. You have missed most of life by this. You young people, you don't know what a Studebaker is. You've missed out, you know? No video game will ever make up for this. If only one person in this room owned a car and it was an old junky car blowing blue smoke, that you would say, but that person owns a car, which proves they would be the elite of the group. Is that right or wrong? So that proves that all this level by the car you drive is complete nonsense. It's just what a what a technique to get people to spend more money for stuff they don't need. What foolishness we live in. It's okay to want a nice car, but like one that'll get you home from Plymouth is a good idea. <laughs> but to to rate yourself by your car, it just means that's how shallow you are. That you don't have anything else going but what you can do outwardly and competing with other people. But character development and developing uh, spiritual and character uh, growth doesn't come from comparing yourself to other people in any way, shape, or form. I use the car example, but it has to do with dealing with yourself and only yourself. It's never in comparison to another person. If it's real, it's about you dealing with the inner you. You think I just love talking like this. I'm accountable for my mouth. I'm going to have to deal with this. <laughs> God is faithful. This is a challenge for us, isn't it? God is dealing with me about me, and nobody else's stuff is what that's about. And if I really want to grow in maturity, in spirituality, in character, in holiness. It's going to be about me dealing with me. Period. And Peter is facing this, isn't he? 
Peter can't believe what Jesus is saying to him. Now, not everyone goes through God's mercy, what Peter did in this full sense, but basically every one of us, if we're going to have this kind of growth, is going to face our own fallen nature. And why did Jesus tell Peter? Well, for Peter and for all of history to know, just as with Judas, a false disciple will betray him. We need to know that so that we don't think Jesus is blind and so that we understand that he's telling us ahead of time and a true disciple will deny him. A false disciple will betray him, but even a true disciple will deny him. His number one man, if you want to call him that. And I'm glad he let us know. And Peter's glad he let us know. Jesus knew. And he came for the likes of Peter. You know, he came for the likes of Peter. And that comforts me. Does that comfort anybody else in here? He came for people who couldn't stay true 100%. And their mouth and their commitment verbally was bigger than their heart's commitment. He came to save people like that. And frankly, I don't know anybody not like that. I don't know everybody, but according to Scripture, I don't know anybody like that. So Jesus knew. And we see Jesus as high priest in the Bible, especially as we see Hebrews unfold. And we see him as king, as we see him be called the king of kings in both the Gospels and in the letters and in Revelation. And we also see him as prophet, and he is the ultimate prophet. Jesus foretold hard things because if he didn't, it would have been even worse. Are you with me? Are you getting that? If he doesn't tell Peter what's happening... Peter doesn't, you know, Peter remembered when the rooster crowed, but he went out and wept bitterly, but he meant Jesus knew. And when Jesus rose, the first thing he said to Mary, go tell my disciples and Peter, I know he's not hanging with them, he's depressed. Go get him. Tell them I called for him personally. And in fact, it doesn't end at verse 38. It's a conversation, and he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That's part of the same conversation. That's a few weeks away, though. But so... Why does he tell us these things? Why hard things in the Bible, not just from Jesus, but throughout the Bible? So we'll know, so we won't be scandalized when things do happen, but we'll believe. You know, the truth hurts, but not as bad as a lie. Because a lie can kill you. A lie can destroy you. The truth will wound you. But faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so, and those are scriptures. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we have an interesting story. I'm going to just take a few minutes on this issue of hearing hard things. In 1 Samuel 3, we have a little Samuel. He's not just three years old. His mom took him to be with the priest, Eli, when he was three, made him a little coat. But we, uh, the understanding is, is that some years have gone by now by the time we get to chapter 3. So he's, he's possibly, scholars say, well, they're thinking 10 to 12 or so, maybe a little more. We don't know. He's not a three-year-old kid. And he's there sleeping in his little bed, caught, and, leap, and uh, the high priest Eli, whose two sons are uh, perverts and destroying the kingdom of God in the, the temple by what they're doing, prostituting the women and stealing the food and the offerings from the people. And Eli does not do anything except say, not, now, boys, you ought not to do that. He had a responsibility to God above his children. And the best thing he could have done for his children would have been earlier on to stop that you know before it started and um 
God comes to Samuel, 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 three times. Eli says, when next time you hear it, just say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so here's this little boy, the first time ever hearing from God. Mary, we're hoping that the kids would hear from God this week. And you're hoping they'd hear something, just like all of us with our children, they'd hear something like, I'm Jesus, I love you, I'm real, I'll never leave you or forsake you, right? And uh, uh, no matter what happens in your life, don't be afraid, I'm with you. And I do think those are great things to pray for your children to hear from God. But Samuel's first words from God is, Samuel, listen up. Paraphrased, but pretty much this. I'm going to do something in Israel that's going to make both ears of everyone that hears about it, not only in Israel, but everywhere, their ears are going to tingle because it's such a hard, terrible, overwhelming thing. Is that Eli has not restricted his sons. He's, he's allowing them to this, and he's responsible. And in one day, his two sons and Eli are all going to die, and the Ark of the Covenant is going to be taken away from Israel. Why would God tell a 10-year-old kid, a 12-year-old, that mean God... Why does he tell a kid something like that? So what if he doesn't tell him? What if he doesn't tell him? You know, Samuel's over there whittling away, maybe making a little copy of the ark or something, you know. (laughs) And all of a sudden, there's a battle, and everything's gone and wiped out. Eli falls over and dies. He's sitting there alone in total confusion and disarray. May I say that There are hard times in life, and there have been times that I haven't, no matter how hard I've tried to read Scripture and everything, not understood the circumstance I was in. I want you to know that that does happen. On the other hand, there are times where people are in total disarray for no reason. God has clearly told us some things about, if you go down this road, this is what's going to happen, but haven't listened can't believe this is happening i can't believe i you know sometimes you can't pay your rent because this life is really hard and you know i think we reach out to help each other for that and sometimes people can't pay their rent because they've been blowing their money why has god forsaken me well let's look at what you bought this week do you understand i mean these are hard things this isn't the fun day like every other week But, you know, it's been me. It's been you. Is there anybody that hasn't been? Or, you know, and, and deep inside you knew and scripture and even warnings from people. And you know what you hate it when people warn you and then you do it. And they don't even have to say, I told you so. They just kind of look over kind of like that. And you go, oh, shut up. You know? <laughs> well, why is it their fault? Why is it their fault? I mean, if they're digging in you, okay, could you stop? I mean, I get the point, but it's not their fault. It's the, you know, anger is this really funny thing. The guy hits the golf ball, it goes the wrong way, and he breaks his club. Well, let's see, who actually made the ball go that way? Was it like a demon flew in and took your ball the wrong way, and, you know, you're chasing a demon that took your, no, you hit the ball. It went where you hit it. No matter how you like it, it went where you hit it. And yet, do you see how anger is so close to the surface in our lives? And we need somebody to vent on him. By the way, I heard a psychologist, not a Christian, on CNN say, the way these guys, this guy, God have mercy on the families, we haven't prayed yet today, for the families of the the soldiers who were killed. 
She said, they're asking the psychologist, how did this, she may be a Christian, but she said, you know, we are, why is it these 20 to 30-year-old guys? Well, they've grown up in this generation that has been taught that they deserve everything. It should be handed to them. And she goes, and then they should have a girlfriend that's just right, and they should have a job that's just right. And like, and the world doesn't work out. And this was, I didn't even know this. She, I don't know if she knew this at the time that the guy had applied for the, you know, t- he failed a drug test at a nuclear plant. And I can't say I know exactly all this guy's story, uh, how he got into deep, into radical Islam, which he did get into deep, into radical Islam. Uh, but, but that she goes, why is it happening to so many young people in that era? Because they think the world owes them something. Is one, it wasn't all she said. She says, and then when it doesn't work out, they have frustration, and they've been given an easy way to let out their anger and frustration. It's not their fault. It's everybody else's, and they can point it at somebody. And, and, and you know, human nature, she didn't say this, but human nature is sinful. How sinful is it? A lot worse than you think it is. And if you think it's just that certain type of person can do that, people get bent in directions, and they do things that you would never think they'd do. In 1920, if you had said, listen, everybody in Germany, listen up. You're going to follow a madman. And you're going to believe that he's your savior. And you're going to believe that it's right. And you can just turn the other eye if you don't like it. But don't, you're going to be okay with him murdering hundreds and millions of people, mowing them down in front of buildings because they're Jewish or they're developmentally disabled, or they're the wrong skin color, or because they're not German, or because they resist at all for you to take over the world. You're going to follow a madman who's going to kill millions of people, and your own sons are going to become the guys who pull triggers and turn on gas chambers. You know what those people would have said? What some people say to us today, you're crazy. You guys are so extreme and out there to left field. You think everybody's bad. And you're the only one's good. No, I think I'm just like anybody else. And I'm not saying that automatically is going to happen. But we're so amazed when things happen. Because we thought we're America. We're filled with, we're good people. Or we have everything going here. Why would somebody do such a thing? Or whatever we thought. I don't know what everybody thought. But I know that a psychologist who knew her stuff <laughs> was saying, she said it right on CNN. If I said that, or you said that in your water cooler place at work, you Christians are so self-righteous. You think you know everything. But she could say it. And I'm glad she did. Well, there's a track somewhere, and I'm going to get on it. All right, so... Um, Samuel hears from God because he needs to. In Genesis 18, let me give you one more story because this is so important, but I won't turn you there. If you want to know, it's Genesis 18, verses 16 through 19. After God appears to Abraham, it's the Lord and two angels. It's a pre-Jesus coming to earth as a man, appearance of the Savior, if you will. Uh, God is there because it's the Lord, but there's also two angels with him, and they're the ones that go ahead to Sodom. But the three of them walk up. Abraham feeds them. And the first thing that happens is that God pronounces blessing on Abraham. Sarah is going to have the baby. Well, she's already 90 and Abraham's 100. So this a miracle of blessing and the promise will be fulfilled. Now catch this. 
On the one hand, God says the promise will be fulfilled next year at this time. Sarah's having the baby. Everybody with me? God's promise, the reason we're here today, the reason the Jews exist, the reason Jesus came, how God worked it out was all through this promise. Yes? Some, just one person say yes, yeah, so I can keep moving. Okay. I, I know you're out there. I can hear you breathing. Okay. So, so, so the promise is intact. It's going to happen. Do you know that today? The promise is intact today. But the next thing he says, he starts to walk away. The three of them walk, and they kind of stop. You get the feeling that they just stop. They're going towards Sodom. And the Lord turns and says, Shall I hide this thing that I'm about to do from Abraham? Seeing that he shall become, a, he, he follows me, he'll become a great niche nation, and because he does and will teach his children to do right, because he will take the information, are you listening? Because he will take the information I give him and he will do right with it. I'm not going to hide this from him. Because he will act on what I tell him. I'll tell him. Sometimes we say, God, I want to hear from you. Do we really? Will we act on what he tells us? The integrity of the upright will guide them, Proverbs 11.3 says. So my integrity in place, my character being built, that I'm going to obey God, it's a hard one. I don't do it perfectly to you, but I know where I need to go. I need to go, if I'm going to ask God to show me direction, I need to ask myself a question first. Before you ask God any more direction, I want to ask you, and I'm asking myself, please help me do it, Lord, to ask the Lord, to ask yourself, excuse me, will I obey what God shows me? Because if you are debating whether you're going to obey what God shows you, get ready for silence. You don't ask God to reveal himself to you so you can decide if you like the plan. You don't, it's not reading the menu in the window to decide if you're going to go in the restaurant and eat there. God doesn't play that game. Will I do what the Lord tells me? Now, I may have to cry out to God, God, you've got to strengthen me for that one because I don't know everything you're going to tell me. I don't know my own weaknesses or strengths completely. I know I have some weaknesses, so help me. That's okay. But do you understand the seriousness of that, the clarity of that? That's, there's, that's, that's clarity. Now, do you want, Rick, and do you want, friends, clarity? Or do you like it kind of vague because then you're not really accountable? God, he's out there somewhere, and I trust him, and I read my Bible Psalms sometimes. And Do you know what I'm saying? But clarity, if you want clarity about how to live your life, then ask yourself the question, if God talks to me and tells me, if he shows me clearly, will I do what he showed me? Abraham, I'm going to tell him what's going on because I know what he'll do. And what did Abraham do? He goes, I'm going to go down to Sodom and see if what I've been hearing is true. And it's not because God didn't really know he needed a spy to go down. It's a way of engaging Abraham, just as he engaged Moses. And some of the Jewish rabbis historically have said, Abraham and Moses were as good as God because they could argue with him and convince him. Please. Listen, you can, you can, you can, 
You can disagree with people. I disagree with my Jewish rabbis on that one. They're crazy. <laughs> so Abraham has better character than God. The argument or the discussion entering was God drawing Abraham out to get him to intercede so God could show clarity to you and me today. If there's 50, will you destroy the righteous with the unrighteous? Well, no, I won't. If there's 50, I won't destroy the city. Lord, please, if there's 40, 30, 20, one more time, one more time, just once, if there's 10. God says, if there's 10, I won't destroy it. And Abraham must assume that between Lot and his kids and his sons-in-law and maybe a couple other guys in town, Abraham must assume, that's got it covered, there's got to be 10 guys in that town. There wasn't. Lot wasn't going to come out anyway. He's declared righteous by God through God's grace and mercy. And he was going to be exited anyway, as you know the story. And it was for the homosexuality. I'm sorry, there's no other way to find it in Scripture. It was for their brutal and complete given over to that and other things. There's other things, but that's there. And I know that's not popular, but that's what it was, among other things. And... And, and, and they're, God says they're done. And, you know, remember these guys, Abraham had saved this place and gave glory to God in Melchizedek. These aren't people that had no clue. Everybody thinks in the Bible, it's just these poor people, these poor people out in, the, out in the hillsides have no clue, and then God expects them to know stuff. If you trace the actual history, they were very aware of the miracles of God and the power of God, and they had accountability and were given time and space. And Abraham intercedes. That's what he did. He has a nephew. He saved the city. He hopes for God's mercy, but he's not more gracious to God. And when God says, this is what I am going to do, Abraham doesn't say, you can't judge. He just asks him, will you judge the righteous with the unrighteous? And God won't. He'll save the righteous. Where it talks about Lot and Peter, he says, God knows how to deliver the righteous and set aside those who deserve just justice and, and, and judgment from the righteous. And for God to be, for you or I to say God has no right to judge, now you have just taken a new title in your life, and it's called God. When you say God doesn't have, you're not just a person with an opinion. You have set yourself up as judge. Either God is the judge or he isn't, but if he isn't, you are. And so these things are important. Abraham prays, and God reveals to him. And God reveals things to us that betrayers other than Judas and deniers like Peter can be redeemed. 2 Corinthians 6, neither liars or thieves or drunkards or homosexual or extortioners, etc., enter the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. All those things listed in 2 Corinthians 6 is what that church was made up of. People that used to be these things. And God could deliver them. And God can deliver me. And God can deliver you. And God can deliver people around us. God tells us many things in the scriptures. But the people that actually hear it and do something with it, and I know you are these people, I believe that for me and for you, by God's grace, and I'm encouraging and urging us to be those people. Is that okay? I'm urging us to be those people. God shows people who care. 
you know, there's a, that's the title of a book by um, Tozer, A.W. Tozer. And all you got to do is have that title just stick out of your bookshelf. Put it on your table and let it stare at you. God, and ladies, you could cross out man and put woman because it's mankind. But God tells the man who cares that I look, I have that book at home, and every time I just look at the cover, and I just start crying and fall on the ground. <laughs> oh God, make me that man! I'm just so easily distracted. God tells the person who cares. God has told us a lot, and I'm going to leave you with that proverbial. And we're going to pray. And I'm going to leave you with that story that has, it's the poster child story, it's the t-shirt, it's the video of all stories that's ever been told in the last 25 years that everybody should have heard by now, but if you haven't, this is your day. (laughs) Because I haven't told it. It's uh, for many years. So the big storm comes into the coastal city, to the beach, and all these starfish come blown in there. I know where I'm going. And the waves go back out and leave these piles of thousands of thousands of thousands of thousands of thousands of starfish on the shore drying out. You know, they got to have water to stay alive. They're very pretty when they're dry, but they're also dead. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so this man's out there in the morning, and the little boy is walking along the beach throwing, and he's got these piles of them. He's throwing starfish in. And the man looks at him and says, oh, son, I can't believe you're doing that. You know, you can't possibly make any difference throwing starfish in like this. And the kid has one in his hand. He goes, well, I guess it made a difference to that one. Our goal is not to look at the world and just think it's all dark and black and hard because there's very difficult, hard things. That's true. There's hard, difficult things, and they're likely to get worse. They might get better. We can pray. But the world isn't this giant collage of confusion. When you look at a collage, it's got all these different pictures all glued on there, right? Do you ever look at one and you go close and you see a little face of somebody you know? Or a picture of some person on a collage. Have you seen that? You you know, it's got little pictures all together. Well, my friends, look for the face on the collage. The face of your neighbor, of your friend of somebody in your family or somebody in your job. There's little faces all over. They're individual people that matter to God, just as you do. See, because if you believe that you personally matter to God, and my role is to tell you today in the name of Jesus Christ, you matter to God. Not just so you'll be a part of the big machine, not just so that the Christians will feel better because they have more Christians with them. You matter to God. Peter mattered to God, not because he was Peter. He's a denier. He mattered to God because that's God's nature. He loves people. He will judge. You have to chew on that. You have to choke on it sometimes, and you have to be brought to the place where you care and not judge God, but say, God, what would you have me do? And we have known here for a while that God would have us pray. And so I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to end this time together in prayer. And if you have the ability to speak out.